So we are um, starting a new sermon series called Postcards from the Prophets. Um, the, uh, the backdrop here has changed, and it, it actually is uh, meaningful with, for the sermon series. Uh, Judy Campbell-Smith and uh, Krista Alstott have done this, and here's what it means. So when you stare at this for the next eight weeks, you'll be reminded. The ropes remind us that God's people were taken into exile. And literally, oftentimes, that's how the people would be transported from Judah or wherever into the foreign land, is through exile or through the ropes. The lights remind us that God was always still with them, that God was still with them. And so, you know, I think we can feel at times, and we'll talk about this, that we maybe are in exile at times, but remember that God is always, always with you. So that's what we're doing. All right, so a quick, uh, quick history lesson. I know everybody loves history. Yeah, okay, good. So uh, after King David is kind of where uh, Israel hits its pinnacle in terms of a nation. After him is Solomon, which is very, very similar. But then after Solomon, he had two sons that both thought they should be king. And so there basically was a split of the country and in essence, a civil war. So here we have a map that shows us. So the one nation that used to be called Israel is now cut into two. So Israel is the um, northern kingdom, and Judah is the southern kingdom. And these two kingdoms, where they used to all be brothers and sisters in the Lord, now they fight against each other. They make alliances with other countries around them, and they uh, basically have a, a series of kings who end up not following the Lord's ways. And so God does send prophets to warn his people, saying, you know what, you guys are not going the way I would want you to go. You're not doing what I want you to do. And then finally, in a 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel is taken over by the nation of Assyria. And those people are carried off into what is called, we call exile. And then a few years later, 100 years later, in 605 BC, Babylon comes in and defeats Judah and Jerusalem. And there's um, a few years of fighting in there, a couple other times that Babylon comes in. And then finally, in 586, the, um, the, the city of uh, Jerusalem is totally destroyed and the temple is destroyed. And, and, God, and what both Assyria and Babylon would do, their strategy would be to take the people from the nation that they have just conquered and bring them back into their nation and dis distribute them all over their kingdom. And then they would send people from their own land into this land that they have just taken over. And the idea was to break down any sort of national sense that the people might hold on to, to break down any sort of religious sense that they would hold on to, and to try and, and, and destroy that sort of thinking is what they were doing. And that was their strategy. And so thus, we, we, the Jews are in what we call exile. They're living in a foreign land, forced to take on foreign customs and worship foreign gods. And they wondered, where are you, God? How did this happen? Have you forgotten about us? Have you, have you left us? What, what is going on? And so much of what you read about from the prophets during the exile time is that. And here's, I think, the connection that hopefully we will have with a group of people that are in a different land, 2,500 years ago, but I think it connects with us here today. And that is that we are now living in what is called a post-Christian world. Our 
world is no longer influenced by uh, Christianity, by the church. There's many things around us. Uh, in the uh, study guide letter, this is what I wrote. I said, um, it is, oh, and I'm going to sit down every once in a while. I have a little um, leg injury, let's say. So just a reminder that pastors are people too. Okay? That's, okay, so here we go. Um, it has been said that we're now living in a post-Christian culture. In many ways, we are living in exile. Christianity is not the central foundation of our society. There's much in our world which degrades or minimizes Christian thinking and beliefs. Many secular commentators label Christians as intolerant or simple-minded when they hold on to moral standards or cultural views that are historically Christian and or biblically founded. And that's the world we live in. And, and, and it's a world that the Jews in the exile experienced. So the hope is that we will, um, by looking at what happened to them and how they um, were faithful, we'll say, okay, this is how we can be faithful. Here's what we can do in our time. So we're gonna be, today we're going to be looking at the book of Daniel. So uh, if you have a Bible, you can follow along in the book of Daniel. We're going to be looking at chapter 1. Uh, the words will also be up behind me um, uh, on the screen. So here's what, how Daniel 1 goes. In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judea, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon and put it in the treasure house of his God. The king, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his um, court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome and showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was, there, he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a uh, daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishnael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishnael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Um, so when they did the exile, what they would do is they came in to Judah and to the city of Jerusalem, and they took the best and brightest back to Babylon. And, and this is the group of them. And something I had read about earlier this week in studying for this is that Daniel and his three friends were probably around 12 or 13 years old. That's when they would start to do this sort of training for people that would end up in, the court, in this king's court. It would take three years, and by that time, they would have them in a position where they could be in the king's court. And the idea by what they're doing, and they're training them for three years, is that it's designed to, to mark a new relationship with their new country, and that they might formally forget about their religion and, and their culture from the past. And they would be fully Babylonian. This is what they were trying to do by their training. Um, the interesting thing about changing their names is this, and I think we have a slide for this. So, um, so Daniel's name is changed to Belshazzar. Daniel means God, my judge. Belshazzar means Bel's princess. Hananiah means Jehovah hath favored. Shadrach means the sun king. Mishnael means who compares to God. 
Uh, Meshach means the earth king. Azariah means whom Jehovah helps. Abednego means servant of the shining fire. And so their names actually were connected with their God in, Jew, in Jerusalem and in Judea. That their, that their name meant something. It would remind them of their own God and their relationship with God. And so they changed their name to names that have now to do with the Babylonian gods. So even the changing of names is a strategy to try and get them to think differently about who they are. To not think of themselves as those who uh, knew Yahweh, but now are you going to follow the gods that we have in Babylonia? So the world tries to change our names. You, you see, the name that God wants us to be reminded of who we are is that we are made in his image and that we are a child of God. And that is the name he would like us to be reminded of who we are. But, but our culture and our world, world around us changes our name to what it, maybe it can get out of us calls us beautiful or smart or a businessman or an athlete. And that's become as we take on that identity with that name. And we forget about the name that God has given us. Or the culture could actually give us a name that attempts to tear us down. It could call us um, ugly or worthless. No good, not worth anything. And those names, whether we realize it or not, the culture pushes on us at times and tries to get us to forget who we are as a child of God. So it's important to be able to think, what is the world trying to do to me? How is the world trying to shape me? What is the world telling me about myself that just isn't true? What name has God given me? And then our culture also attempts to train us. Daniel and his three friends were trained for three years. Our culture tries to train us also. There is an intentional, purposeful plan to influence how we think, what we believe, how, what is important to us, how we look, and what we buy. Uh, years ago, back when I was still doing youth ministry, there was a PBS special that came out called Merchants of Cool. And here's what this little documentary was about. Back in that day, and it's probably even more so now, there was only about seven uh, conglomerations that owned everything. You'd be shocked. Everything having to do with entertainment, everything having to do with sports, everything. There was only about seven of them. There's probably less now because of the mergers that have happened. But it's all the ones we know. It's things like Disney. It's things like ESPN. It's like ABC. It's all of those sort of things. And, and they basically have control over what is produced and what people see. And they actually would hire companies that would do research on kids and would try to find out what is the next thing that's going to happen. What's the next uh, clothing style that we think kids are going to be into? What's the next genre of music that's going to happen? What sort of movies might kids be interested in? And they did all sorts of research. And these people were paid a lot of money to come back to these conglomerations and say, here's what we think is cool or what is going to be cool. And then these large companies would push this onto kids and basically shape them into being the people that they want them to be. Now, it still happens today, right? It is a plan 
I don't think it's too far to say this, from the pit of hell to try and shape you into being who the world wants you to be. When you watch TV, when you watch advertisements, when the movies that are out there, all this stuff, it's all about trying to train you and train me to be how the world wants me to be. Hey, real briefly, I want to look at just three areas where our worldview has been shaped by the culture and is really in conflict with what God has said. And, and I just want to give sort of a, 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 I don't know, but by opening up these three really quickly, I'm probably opening up cans of worms that these are probably a whole sermon on their own, or they for sure could be a sermon series, but I just want you to be thinking about here, yeah, you're right, you know what, here is how the world is shaping us. The first area I want to look at real briefly is money. Here's what the world says. It is, money is how we measure each other's success or failure. More and more is better. It buys you happiness. Sacrifice everything for more. Have a scarcity mentality and hold on to it tightly. That that's what the world is speaking to you. That no matter how much you have, you should get more. And how, no matter how hard you have to work or how much you sacrifice or whatever, you want to get more and more money. And you want to hold on to it tightly because you never know what might happen. God's view of money is this. You cannot serve both God and money. Do not love money. Money, God gives us money and we are to steward it well. Be generous to others. And so you have this conflict that is happening between what the world tells us about money and what God tells us about money. And the world is trying to shape us into, into people that follow that way. Okay, the second one, and this is even, I, I just know I'm going to get letters or something about this, but here we go. Sex and relationships. Relevant um, Magazine, which is a Christian magazine, uh, had the four, um, or the four uh, things that culture, untruths that culture teaches us about sex. Here's what they said. The context of sex doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you're in a relationship, doesn't matter... Just do it. Sex is an act of taking rather than an act of giving. How much can I get from that other person? Sex is a physical, one-dimensional experience. It has nothing to do with a relationship, emotions, spiritual, or anything. It's only physical. We can't control sex because it controls us. It's just too strong. We can't overcome it. And then in terms of marriage, marriage is a commitment until I don't want it to be any longer until it becomes too hard. That's, that's the um, message that much of our culture speaks to us about relationships and about sex. And the problem is when we start hearing that and believing that, it means that we fall into all sorts of stuff and you have um, premarital sex, you have um, affairs that happen, you have people that get caught up in pornography, and, and it's just not as God has designed it. Here's God's view. God created us for relationships. God's original intent is that marriage is between a man and a woman for life and that sex is to be expressed only within this marriage relationship. Sex should be expressed in a way that is holy and honorable, enhancing the dignity of the person and promoting the sanctity of life. God, God has a really huge view of relationships, a huge view of what marriage is, huge view of sex. And he says, this is, it is good when it's done in the right, right way. 
And yet our world, again, is trying to form us and shape us into being how it wants us to be when this is what God says. The last one's a little easier. It's just time. Here's what the world says. Time is my own, and it is good to be as busy as possible. That is how people know that I'm valuable. How are you doing? Busy. Oh, good. (laughs) Right? Man, it would be terrible if you weren't busy. But that's the name of the game. Be as busy as possible because now people know that you're valuable. Here's what God says. Time is a gift from God. The commandment of taking a Sabbath is necessary for for the good of our body and our soul and allows us to truly grow in our faith to God. Find time to rest. Find time to connect with God. Don't work all the time. You don't have to be busy all the time. Take time to rest, have your soul renewed, and get to know the Lord in a deeper way. So those are just three sort of areas. Like I said, we could spend a whole whole day on each one of them, but it shows us that our culture is saying something very different than what God's word says to us. And it's very easy because we live in the culture that is so strong to be influenced by that culture and to not live the life that God would want us to have. So what can we learn from Daniel? What can we learn from this man, right? He's been taken from his homeland. He's in Babylonia. He's one of um, four that have been taken from Judah, at least. He's being trained. He's being able to um, eat from the king's table anything he wants, the best food. And here's what it says in Daniel 1.8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. So the choice for Daniel to not eat this food that he's given could be that it was considered unclean to the Jews. It could be that the food had already been offered to these Babylonian gods and, again, would be unclean for them to eat. But for whatever reason, Daniel and his three friends say, you know what, we don't want to eat from the king's table. Now, the king's table would have been the best food, the best wine, much better than what other people in exile are eating. But he says, we shouldn't do this. And here's here's the key, and here's the key for us. But Daniel resolved. Daniel resolved. You know, this word's really important. It implies a decided resolution, something that comes from deep inside a person, and it shows their desire to be faithful to God. This wasn't just a kind of, oh, I'll just make that decision. This was something that came deep from within Daniel and his three friends. They're like, no, this is not what God would want us to do. God wants us to live differently. As as tempting as it would be to eat the food from the king's table, we're not going to do it. And it came from this resolve that is deep inside of them. And that is what caused them then to do what they did. The other thing that's important in this thing is that Daniel has three friends who are with him in this. It's not like Daniel's out there by himself trying to do this, but he's got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego behind him saying, yeah, we are with him. None of us want to do this. And the beauty of this too, though, that yeah, if you read the whole account, it's really important, is Daniel asks gently and humbly to not have to eat from the king's table. He doesn't force his way in. 
He doesn't cause a hunger strike. He doesn't picket the court. He, you know, a lot of stuff. He just asks with great gentleness and respect to the guy in charge and just says, you know what? Would it be all right if we don't eat what you're giving us and we eat something else? So important for Christians to remember this. So crucial to remember that everything we do when we're trying to hold on to our faith and, and be faithful to God, that we don't do it in a judgmental way, but that we do it in a very gentle and compassionate way. It's crucial for us to remember this. And then the last line is really important, and we'll talk about it some more, but that God is the one who causes the official to show favor and compassion, that God's faithfulness to his people are still with them, even though they're in exile. Even though they're probably in exile and they're wondering, where is God? God is continuing to work. It's all through the book of the prophets. God is continuing to work with his people, even though they are far away from Judah, even though their temple has been destroyed, God is still faithful. He is still with them. So the official tells Daniel, hey, you know what? I don't think I can do what you're asking because if you don't eat the same stuff as everybody else and you guys start looking really weak and tired, then the king will literally have my head. So I don't think I can do that. And so what uh, Daniel says, well, what about, let's just try it for 10 days. 10 days, uh, the four of us will just eat vegetables and water. And then after 10 days, see how we look compared to the rest of the guys, and, and we'll make a decision after that. The guy goes, okay, that sounds fair. So 10 days, they just eat vegetables and water. The other guys eat from the king's table. After 10 days... Daniel and his friends look much better than the other guys. Again, I think it was a work of God there to have that happen. And then, so the court official goes, wow. So then he takes away all the king's food from the other guys and goes, hey, we're all eating vegetables and water. I'm not sure how that went over with them. But that's what happened there. And then in verse 17 of chapter 1, it says this. To these four men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. So Daniel remains faithful to God. He resolves to not give in to the culture around him. He resolves to hold on to what he believes about Yahweh, and God shows himself to be faithful to them, right? It says that he... Um, that God gives them the ability to have knowledge and understanding and that Daniel could understand visions. All that came from God, that God is, remains faithful. So, so what does this mean for us? What, how, does, how do we do this? How do we remain faithful in the midst of a culture that de- tries to shape us? The, the scripture that comes is uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And it seems like everything takes us back to Romans 12. But here's what Paul writes. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, the, um, the Greek words of this are so rich. And so one of my favorite Greek um, commentators is a guy named Kenneth Wust. And um, here's how he translates this verse. And I think it will just help us to get an understanding of what Paul meant. So here's what he says. He says, and stop assuming an outward expression that does not come from within you. Here's the thing. Paul is saying, stop doing what you're already doing. That they were already conforming to the ways of the world. 
and stop assuming an outward expression that does not come from within you and is not representative of what you are in your inner being, but is patterned after this age. But change your outward expression to one that comes from within and is representative of your inner being by the renewing of your mind. So here's what, here's what Paul is saying to the people he wrote to um, in Rome and to us. Stop being who you're not. Be who you are in your inner being. Be reminded of who you are as a child of God. And allow who you are on the inside to come to the outside. That people would see who you really are on the inside. And it happens as we allow our mind to be transformed, our life to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so ultimately what each of us needs to do is allow our mind and our heart to be transformed by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Love the Word of God. Read it. Study it. Memorize it. Allow it to change you and cause you to be different and remind you of who you are in Christ. And then ask the Holy Spirit to be the one that that empowers you and changes you and and causes your mind to think differently and to hold on to who you really are as a follower of Jesus. The main point from the prophets is going to be that God's people remained faithful to him, even in the midst of exile, but again, that he remained faithful to them as they were in exile. That he had not left them, he had not forgotten about them, he had not said, you're off on your own, I'm done with you, but that God remained faithful to them. And I think this week, there was a really great example of what it means to live today as people of faith, of people who want to remain faithful to God, even in the midst of a culture that would shape us to be different. And I'm guessing most of you saw this, but there was a courtroom in Dallas, Texas this week where a a police officer named um, Amber Geiger was um, found guilty of killing... Botham Jean. I think we have some pictures of this. That's Amber. She's 31 years old. She um, claims that she didn't know uh, what floor of her apartment complex she was on. She thought she was on hers. She was actually at one floor up. And the door that she thought was hers was open. And she went in thinking there was an intruder in her apartment with her gun drawn. She had just come off of um, duty. And she shot, and, and this is the man she shot, um, she shot, uh, and his name is Botham Jean. He's 26 years old, wonderful Christian man from what I've read about him online. But she had thought he was in her apartment when he was actually in his own apartment eating ice cream and watching TV. So she was found guilty this week and sentenced to 10 years in prison. And um, after the sentencing, the family spoke to uh, Amber Geiger. And one of the people that spoke to her was... Um, Botham Jean's 18-year-old brother, whose name is Brant. And he spoke to Geiger, and he said to her, I forgive you. I don't even want you to go to prison if I had my way. I don't want you to rot and die in prison. I want you to have the best life you could have. And I want you to come to know Christ. And then he turned to the judge And he asked the judge, can I give her a hug? And the judge said, yeah. And we have a picture of that. 
So this young man who's 18 years old is hugging the woman who shot his older brother. And, and honestly, in a time where there's so much division and there's an overwhelming desire in our world to get vengeance, this young man shows what it's like to actually have faith and to trust God and be willing to forgive. The other crazy thing about this is that the judge, who was an African-American woman, after the thing, came out and gave um, Geiger a Bible and gave her some scriptures to read and said, I hope you are changed and transformed. And I guess not surprising, our world has not looked upon that very, very well. But this is a man who's living out what it means to be faithful to God, even when it's tough, even when it's really difficult. So it will take, on our parts, resolve to remain faithful to our God in a culture that's trying to do everything to pull us away from him. It'll take having community around us and accountability like Daniel had. It will take a renewal of our mind through the word of God and the Holy Spirit. And that that truly is what will change us and allow us to then be faithful in a time of exile as we live in a post-Christian world. Those are the practices that are really important to do. And we have another practice that we do here once a month, and that's communion. And this is a great reminder of what Christ has done for us. It's a great reminder of who we are in Christ. And it's, a, it's so important for us to remember who we are as God's children. And so today, when you come forward and you grab the bread and you put it in the juice and you eat it, I hope you'll be reminded that, that Christ died for me. I'm forgiven. I can experience his grace. But I also hope that you will maybe just hold on to it for a moment and ask the Lord to say, Lord, where are you calling me to be faithful in the world right now? Where are you calling me to be a light in the midst of the world right now? And that Christ would remind you of that. So as the um, elders come forward who are going to help with communion, let me uh, pray for us. So Lord Jesus, it is our prayer that we would be people of resolve, it is our desire, Lord, to have people around us that encourage us and help us. It is our desire, Lord, that the word of God and the Holy Spirit would be so at work in our hearts that who we are on the inside would come out as being who we are on the outside. Help us, Lord. And it is our desire and prayer and hope that, that, um, that this communion, that this taking of the bread and the juice would remind us of your goodness and your grace to us, but also remind us to be faithful to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.